Escape from Plan A. Welcome to Escape from Plan A. This is uh, your host, Teen. Got a special guest with me today, uh, Ajit Singh, who I'll intro in a sec. But because uh, I'm trying to be responsible here and doing some housekeeping before we start the pods, uh, again, noticed our patron count went up. And so whoever's joining, I guess I can go through the I can go through the list and see who it is. But uh, it's really, really appreciate it. Um, again, we've been upping our uh, article buying and stuff. So... Uh, all the all the money that we're getting through Patreon is going out the door to uh, Asian American writers and stuff, which I've noticed people are very uh, thankful for right now because, um, from what I understand, a lot of freelance work has been put on hold. So uh, we are happy to help where we can. Uh, today, um, Ajit Singh, someone I really know through Twitter, and I know Amanda had kind of recommended that I follow your account, a mutual friend of ours, Amanda. Um and uh, really kind of enjoy what you've been posting. You've posted a lot of articles that you've written and uh, just wanted you to intro yourself a bit and sort of like what the focus of a lot of your um, article writing and research has gone into. Yeah, so first, uh, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, uh, I'm a, uh, I guess, a graduate student uh, at the University of Manitoba, and I focus on uh, politics of development in the global south with a particular uh, uh, emphasis on China and uh, US-China relations. Um, I'd say like politically, my background, I I come to uh, things from an anti-imperialist perspective and a Marxist perspective. and I'd say it's from that that I've been drawn to issues related to China and related to how China is represented in the United States and the West, um, and in particularly U.S.-China dynamics, uh, which I think are um, of, I'd say, foundational importance to uh, the shape and movement of the international order now and going forward, at least in our lifetimes. I think it's going to be probably the central issue. Um, And yeah, I think growing up here in Canada, but also this applies, I think, more broadly in the West, um, there's amongst progressive-minded people and and left-leaning people, um, there's an extreme sort of hostility towards China uh, that doesn't really separate itself very substantially um, from the same sort of hostility of uh, Western governments. Um, And I just felt that um, being someone who lives in the West, uh, it's sort of like, uh, I think there's some responsibility for progressive-minded people to challenge this sort of um, like almost total uh, hostile orientation uh, and try to provide alternative perspectives uh, because um, I think there are a lot of dangerous implications to this sort of uh, demonization of China and the Chinese government. Um, and yeah, so uh, I write uh, on occasion um, 
for different outlets on related to different issues, uh, primarily focusing on uh, exam investigating and sort of um, taking a deeper look at common uh, tropes or stories we hear about China uh, in the U.S. and West, um, and also trying to outline uh, an alternative perspective uh, on, at least in my opinion, uh, what I think China represents to the world. So, so you've been you've been kind of preparing for this moment in a way, then, because uh, I assume that you've been you've been really focused on this on on um, on China and the West Westerns Western I don't know images and, and relations and, uh, modes of relating to China. This is probably the most intense period uh, in that relationship in a long time. If I mean, I've. I'm Chinese American. I guess I've always had my eye t on it for that reason, and I, I I don't remember a period in my life where had, it's been this intense and uh, this dangerous. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I think it's incredibly uh, scary to see, and uh, especially with the rise and just like extremely uh, uh, disturbing and, and like visceral hate crimes. Uh, we're seeing in the United States, but also in Canada uh, last week, a 92-year-old um, Asian-Canadian man was assaulted in public uh, related to uh, coronavirus discrimination. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely feels ex like um, a lot more impactful or, or sensitive than any time in, in my lifetime. Uh, but um, I, think, um, I think in the way that I understand it, uh, this is the coronavirus uh, sort of crisis is sort of a launching point for um, the United States uh, establishment in particular to um, advance an already long existing agenda, uh, meaning sort of great power confrontation, as they put it, with China. Um, and the roots of this are actually decades long, uh, you see sort of the modern roots of U.S. hostility towards China, really the foundation for it was laid during the Obama administration, uh, where uh, President Obama and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton advocated for the uh, quote-unquote pivot to Asia and shift of the majority right, right. of U.S. naval assets to the Asia-Pacific and militarizing that region with an idea towards quote-unquote containing China's rise and maintaining what they call U.S. leadership into the 21st century. And so this sort of has been escalated throughout the Trump administration's tenure, uh, where uh, moving from this sort of implicit sort of uh, recognition that China is a quote-unquote threat to explicitly naming China as a threat, uh, and that great power competition had taken over from the so-called war on terror as the main uh, focus of U.S. national security. And um, then you have very hawkish statements uh, by the United States and NATO uh, uh, members referring to the Chinese Communist Party as the greatest threat in the world. Um, and I think really in this moment of crisis uh, where there's extreme sort of uh, confusion, fear, uh, disruption of the way things are, uh, the United States, both for, I think, um, narrow blame shifting reasons that we can all see where the Trump administration has horribly botched the response to the coronavirus and needs a scapegoat, both these sort of narrow calculations 
but also ramping up and pushing forward this agenda uh, at this moment uh, where there's space for them to do so. Um, and yeah, I think it's incredibly uh, dangerous and should be concerning for our, everyone in the world, uh, uh, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you and you and I tried to do this. I think last week or something. We did. We didn't have enough. We didn't have the time to do it last week, so we waited a bit. And I'm I'm glad. It's almost like the longer we wait, I, I feel like the better it is in a way because these it's, there's so much happening, uh, and and just in one week we've seen a lot of things happen. And you mentioned earlier about. I mean, I, I'm not sure what when you say left as a Canadian that might have a different meaning than me as an American. But uh, let's take it at the broadest sort of like most uh, most um, the broadest level in America. We just say liberals, and what we've seen in the last week, and I think you, you've I think you've commented on this, is that the Democratic Party uh, has I think there was an internal memo or something that said that they really want to start attacking Trump as being too soft on China when it came to the coronavirus thing. They want to get. They want to double down on the hawkishness when it comes to China. And I feel like it's it's kind of scary to me that we have um, a Republican Party and a Democratic Party that are now sort of in a race to see which side is more uh, willing to confront and, you know, willing to confront and raise hostilities with China. And that, that that's a sort of uh, a, a bona fide that you want to prove now going into the election in November. That was something new. And we saw Biden come out with an attack ad calling uh, Trump having rolled over for the Chinese and accusing them of being, uh, you know, accusing him of having too close ties with China. And I know there goes they're looking now into suggestions that that Trump has financial uh, personal financial incentives tied up in China, that he took loans from a Chinese bank. Uh, like $200 million worth. I don't know how substantiated any of this stuff is, but they're going that route. And then on the other side, I think they're going to counter, the Republicans are going to counter and say that uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, has some sort of business interests that have been undisclosed in China or whatever. So you have two sides that are going to accuse the other of having been compromised by China. And then both sides saying that they're going to be the one that's tougher on China. And uh, I, it's, it's just, a, it's just this escal, it's just a sort of like internal escalation, this internal ratcheting of the sort of xenophobic rhetoric that I see getting out of hand. And I don't know what's going to put a break on it. If in America, you see both the left and the right engaging in it. Do you see, do you, do you see what I'm talking about? You know, yeah, it's, no, it's very concerning, right? Yeah, uh, it's hard to overstate uh, how disturbing and dangerous this trend is. Uh, in terms of my terminology of, of what I mean by left, I, I generally consider the sort of the liberals and Republicans or Democrats to both broadly be broadly uh, be on the right of center, and then the left generally people who supported the Sanders campaign and, and outlets like Jacobin Magazine and whatnot, the mainstream left. Uh, in regards to my earlier comment, at least I was referring to even the mainstream left has maybe not, not of course, the same hawkishness that the establishment Democrats and Republicans do, but they all, they are, even this mainstream left, uh, which claims to be in opposition to and critical of uh, the U.S. establishment, often accepts or is unwilling to really substantially challenge uh, the U.S. hostility towards China. But regards with regards to what you're saying, I think absolutely it's like a uh, a bidding war who can outbid the uh, 
the other in terms of how uh, anti-China they can be. And uh, I think it, we're seeing a lot of sort of a rehashing of the same sort of media stories and uh, tropes that were put out post-2016 and the election of Donald Trump vis-a-vis quote-unquote collusion with Russia uh, now being uh, trying to be trotted forward by both parties against each other. Uh, I think if we look at the historical example of the very recent historical example and continuing example of Russiagate, um, I I think you saw um, it just created the sort of ecosystem where uh, anything that the quote-unquote intelligence agencies said or U.S. unnamed U.S. officials said could be treated as fact by uh, a largely pliant corporate media. Um, and so you get this very uh, um, concerning situation where there are very low evidentiary standards um, in terms of what uh, is, is considered reputable reporting with respect to these quote-unquote enemy countries, be it Russia or China. Um, and I think that should be concerning because it's empowering uh, uh, incredible hostility amongst ordinary Americans we're seeing uh, towards China and viewing China as a threat, uh, not just within the Republican and Democrat Party. Uh, there were two recent polls. Uh, the first was within the two major parties that found over three quarters blame China for coronavirus. And so we're seeing both parties are trying to focus on China as being the problem as opposed to systemic issues with U.S. neoliberal capitalism or issues of governance uh, at the federal and state levels being primarily responsible. It's sort of shifting the blame onto China, which is going to do nothing to help ordinary Americans who are suffering and have genuine reason to be outraged at the way their government has handled this crisis. Um, and we're also seeing not just within these two parties, but amongst ordinary Americans, there was a, a recent poll by Pew Research, the polling institute, uh, that found two thirds of Americans now view China unfavorably, and that's up 20% from just two years ago. Uh, nine out of 10 adults view China as a threat and 62% view it as a major threat. And so this is very concerning from, uh, and I think this trend is gonna continue where you see both establishment parties uh, who by and large control or have a dominant role in shaping political discourse within the country, trying to ratchet this already tense situation up even higher. Um, it's concerning from, from the things that we can all recognize in terms of uh, potential conflict, war, uh, danger uh, between two uh, large global powers. But I think it should also be seen as concerning for uh, Americans themselves uh, within the United States. Um, uh, we've already mentioned the rise in racist hate crimes against people of uh, Asian descent. Uh, I think we're also going to see, and we're, we are seeing, this sort of dishonest China scapegoating being used uh, or being weaponized to push nefarious agendas. We've heard Trump uh, in the past week refer to being threatened by a quote-unquote invisible enemy in order to push forward his anti-immigration politics and xenophobia. We've seen anti-quarantine protesters telling healthcare workers to quote, go to China if they want communism. Uh, it's also being, oh, and most absurdly, which should be a national scandal, uh, the New York Times reported this week that um, officials in Washington have basically been not uh, not accepting a donation of PPE from uh, or personal protective equipment from 
the Chinese foreign ministry because they're afraid of being seen as being helped by China and quote unquote furthering the propaganda aims of the Chinese government. So they're literally causing or uh, enabling the the crisis of of, of uh, medical uh, and healthcare workers uh, who are forced to dress in things like garbage bags uh, because they don't want to be seen as helping the enemy. Um, but also, I think. Uh, we, of course, Trump is going to be trying to use this uh, as part of his re-election campaign to say that it's not his fault that the coronavirus crisis happened, but China's. But also the Democrats, I think, are going to try to use this very much in the same way they used Russiagate cynically post-2016 to avoid any critique of neoliberal policies that they pushed for their unpopularity. Uh, I think they're going to be using, quote unquote, Chinagate or whatever you want to call it, in order to squash any momentum the Sanders campaign or movement may have had to push the Biden campaign to the left uh, or to push that sort of insurgency within the party, uh, because their whole agenda is to say Biden's more anti-China than Trump is. Um, and this should be very concerning because it's going to be used to, I think, mute the space that's been opened up by this movement to discuss things like student debt, uh, healthcare, uh, inequality, employment. Um, and I think you're going to see both parties reinforcing uh, and and sort of creating this sort of feedback loop where it just becomes more about China, China, China. Uh, okay, I, I wanted to, you, you, what you just mentioned there at the, at the, at the, the last part about um, using Chinese, Sinophobia as a way to uh, silence or marginalize critiques of the American neoliberal system or the neoliberal order you had brought that up i feel like you brought that up in an article which i'll link in the show notes uh that i want to ask you about sure because i think in that article you had said that uh that china demonstrates that there is an alternative to the u.s neoliberal order right yes. and i wanted to ask you about that in the sense of do you mean by that that the chinese have a better model that we should learn from or do you mean that kind of what what I was taking from what you just said there, that China just shows that our system is inadequate. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to move towards a Chinese system um, or our understanding of what the Chinese system is, which is very limited, right? I'm not even sure yeah. that anyone in America really understands the Chinese system. Is it just sort of, I mean, because this is my view, right? Is that regardless of what you think about the Chinese system, we know because the coronavirus has been basically a giant comparative study that the American system is broken and it's not China's fault because there are other countries that are doing well against this and they don't follow the Chinese model and China's doing well and they follow the Chinese model. I, it, it almost seems to me like the issue isn't chi the Chinese model, but it's our model and whether it's actually working and it's clearly not. Yeah, I think uh, in that article, uh, what I was trying to put forward is I think um, basically in the neoliberal period, the, in the U.S. and West, uh, the sort of narrative has been that there's no alternative to neoliberalism and this sort of, there's no alternative is viable. You know, we saw the, cl the collapse of the socialist bloc in the Soviet Union. And so it's just the uh, inevitable end of history, quote unquote, or capitalism's ultimate triumph. Uh, and this has been used uh, in order to justify sort of uh, free market fundamentalism, uh, privatization, deregulation, austerity, and things like this, that there simply is no other way. Nothing else works. And I think what China represents, one aspect of the complex 
uh, U.S. orientation towards China is, I think, an anxiety over the fact that uh, much in the way that the Soviet Union presented an alternative, if we just bracket whatever you want to call it, it represents a coherent functioning alternative that something that works, that's an alternative to what we've been told is the only option uh, for four decades. And I think um, regardless of, it's not so much about the goal is to copy some other system and this is the thing that works for everyone. No, but it's just, it's it, it opens up space to think and push forward all sorts of alternatives. The more uh, pluralism that exists in the in the forms of political economic systems that that are in the world. Uh, the more there are, the more that you can pull from in order to justify whatever you need to apply to your own country and the problems that you face. And I think this is something that the United States is very anxious about um, because it not only undermines the sort of um, uh, foundation of their neoliberal order at home, but also, and I'd say more importantly around the world, like a pillar of the past four decades has been sort of pushing the quote unquote Washington consensus on developing countries throughout the world. Uh, and this sort of tripartite deregulation, austerity and uh, privatization, uh, structural adjustment reforms often with the aid and most notoriously with through the IMF and World Bank, these sort of structural uh, adjustment packages. And um, I think what China represents is it, it 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 erodes this narrative that alternatives aren't possible and it legitimizes that alternatives are possible. And I think there are uh, important things that we can learn from all sorts of systems, but also from China, uh, because I think what China represents is it's it exists and it, it it's not it's not a system that wants to be is or will be incorporated into a U.S.-led international order. And it can, uh, uh, it's creating space for other countries to also not exist within that order. And this is a great threat to U.S. imperialism. Um, I think there are uh, important aspects of the Chinese system that I think we can learn from. Uh, you can learn that the state and public sector can play a leading role in an economy without sacrificing economic growth, which is the opposite of what we've been told, that uh, public uh, institutions are inherently inefficient and uh, we need to privatize, privatize, privatize. Um, it shows that, uh, that it's possible to uh, discipline a private sector, for example, in terms of when there's a need to build uh, to manufacture PPE, you don't just have to wait around for private companies to find their own motivation to do it. A public sector can uh, put a mandate on 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 the private sector to build what people need. Uh, that uh, I, I just think there are a lot of uh, a lot of openings that the existence of alternatives presents for ordinary people who are looking to make changes uh, in order to address the problems they face uh, at home. Yeah, and, and and in a way though, I think I mean just looking at the way the U.S. or the Trump administration has responded, like it, it almost seems to me that China might even be more uh, 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 properly integrated into the international system in a way than the U.S. Because if you look at what the U.S. has done, we've just constantly been retreating from all sort of international 
you know, cooperative forums, right? Like we left, we, uh, maybe TPP isn't the greatest example, but we immediately exited the TPP. Uh, Paris Accords, when China announced, you know, uh, sort of towards the end of Obama's uh, administration that, uh, that they had fully ratified Paris, uh, the you know Obama sort of signaled that the U.S. would be doing that too, and then we exited. And now with and same thing, human the UN. I mean, you know, the U.S. Uh, was a member of the UN, UN Human Rights Committee. Uh, I think what the U.S. That. exited from was the UN, UN. I think Relief Works Agency, which provided uh, aid for um, I think Palestinian refugees uh, and other marginalized groups. Um, I remember that. I, I believe the, yeah, the, the Human Rights Council was also something that we left for the same reason, saying mm-hmm. that Nikki Haley had said that the reason we left was because of like a chronic anti-Israel bias in the mm-hmm. UNHRC, which is weird because the UNHRC is the one that has actually issued a lot of stuff condemning China for, um, you know, the perceived actions in, in Xinjiang and stuff. And the U.S. loves to pile on to that. But I'm like, it's it's hard to say that. When you yourself, you know, we ourselves have left the UNHRC, so we can't even sign the letters, right? And then now, I think further to this ongoing pattern of, you know, exiting the international stage, Trump pulls funding for the WHO and their last video meeting, the U.S. didn't attend. So we're apparently out of the WHO. So, and and, and we're accusing the WHO of being sort of lackeys to the Chinese, which uh, I don't think there's any case to be made about that. But it seems to me like actually a lot of this stuff is about how the U.S. is sort of exiting the global stage. It's not so much like we're trying to protect, at least under Trump, this is what I've seen. It's not necessarily just that we're trying to protect our standing, but China's posing a challenge to it. But it almost seems like the U.S. is just sort of willfully ex- you know, willfully uh, drawing back from it uh, against global opinion that you know seems to – it seems like we're the odd ones out. I mean, it was it was I, I forgot which was it a G7 meeting where the U.S. had been pushing for the some resolution to make reference to the Wuhan or the Chinese virus. And yeah, and they couldn't. Come the other countries were just like, no, we're not doing this. This is not this. You know, I mean, and we're talking about like France and the G7, right? Mm-hmm. Germany, they they weren't willing to do it. So I'm, it just makes me think like it's actually the U.S. has really proven itself to be the odd one out here, whereas sort of the rest of the world is trying as trying to some degree to work together yeah the united um, states loves to call countries that it that are so the quote-unquote bad guys rogue states but it's the united states that seemingly is at least under the trump administration uh seemingly un incapable of or unwilling to deal with building consensus uh to deal with any sort of dissenting opinion or criticism or disagreement uh and in the face of it if they don't all take the u.s line at least under this administration, they leave the institution. Um, at the same time, I don't think this means that the United States is just going to become a hermit by any means. During the same period, we've seen them ratchet up just unilaterally whatever agenda they want to push, whether that's sanction regimes, which are strangling uh, countries in which they want to advance regime change, like Venezuela, uh, Iran, even during a global pandemic, um, or uh military strikes or military presence um, or, or, or or what have you, uh, diplomatic measures such as uh, recognizing, uh, quote-unquote, recognizing Jerusalem, Jerusalem, ah, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, I think the United States 
is sort of abandoning the pretense of being a sort of a multilateral consensus building country and just more openly and nakedly pursuing its imperial uh, agenda. Yeah, and I, I wonder too whether, um, you know, we're starting to build, at least the Trump administration is starting to build ties with, uh, you know, ele- like say in Europe, starting to build ties with like more far right elements in Europe that don't necessarily control uh, control the day over there and, and sort of seeking because uh, you, you, I, I don't know what the relationship with Bannon is right now, but it makes me feel like Bannon's still like a stalking horse for the Trump administration. And he's he's out there building connections with the far right in Europe and stuff. And it's just really, I don't know, the whole if I dig if I dig too deep into what's going on in the U.S. government right now with the Trump administration, it's very disturbing. I mean, it, it really feels like a return to fascism. And oh, sorry. No, no go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, it's there is there are connections with uh the United States and far-right governments on the basis of anti-China uh, hostility. We've seen this in Brazil with the rise of Bolsonaro uh, and the sort of uh, a juris, uh, or a judicial coup against the Workers' Party and Dilma Rousseff uh, in Brazil. That's been sort of a big uh, pillar of that uh, movement was this sort of uh, anti-China rhetoric that the Progressive Workers' Party was, uh, who helped found uh, BRICS, was a founding member of BRICS, Brazil, under the Workers' Party, uh, was sort of selling out to China. And we've seen the same sort of rhetoric uh, in Bolivia uh, for the uh, right-wing military coup against um, uh, Evo Morales that was backed by the United States, also this anti-Chinese rhetoric. And also, uh, for a long time, we've seen this sort of hostility uh uh, being a pillar of U.S.-India relations, particularly under the far-right government of Narendra Modi. Uh, so this is definitely a dynamic which has been existing for some time. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if it exists elsewhere, uh, because we're already seeing it. So that, that really suggests then that this is a, this is, there, there is a large uh, global chasm here between the U.S. and China that's shaping up to be a Cold War-type confrontation. Is that your read on it? What's going on? Um, I think the, that is the, what the United States wishes to pursue. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the United States, basically, in the post cold post first Cold War period, this sort of uh, principal objective of the United States is to prevent the rise of any sort of country which could challenge its what it calls what its ambition for a sort of unipolar dominance or being the sole dominant global power. Um, and this has been its objective in the three or four decades since that time. And I think China, uh, while I don't think, and at least and the position of the Chinese government isn't one to try and supplant the United States, but it inevitably undermines this, um, this very narrow uh, imperial objective of the united states which is untenable it's it's an there's no way that the people of the world are just going to accept the united states agenda to uh live under its dominion um formally and informally uh but it's inevitably it's inevitably going to lead to challenges this has been the history of the past several centuries of of capitalism you've seen the rise of the the 
British Empire, and then also challenges not just from the colonial world, but the first challenges were from uh, other sort of colonial powers who wanted to carve out more space for themselves and not just be under Britain. And then most uh, progressively, we've seen throughout the 20th century, the rise of movements against uh, the domination of the West throughout the vast majority of the world in the global South. And that process was unfinished and incompleted. And we've seen fallbacks in this sort of struggle for substantive independence in in a lot of these post-colonial nations. And now we're seeing another wave of challenge by, and I think at the heart of this is China, but it's not just China. I think a common misconception in US-China relations is to view the struggle as just being this sort of narrow uh, um, uh, conflict between two uh, powers that just have a narrow interest to, to each displace the other. But China is different from the United States. Uh, it plays a different role in the world than the United States. And it's not even, even if we were to bracket or, or make the most uncharitable assessment of Chinese international relations and say China's incredibly selfish or whatever, which a lot of people like to characterize China as, even if we were to accept this presentation, the existence of China is at least uh, a source uh, for leveraging interests that developing countries are already making use of to pursue their own independent development paths. We're seeing this with a range of countries like Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Iran, uh, Syria, and elsewhere. And regardless of what you think of these particular countries, they can all be understood as countries that are trying to pursue a path of independent development across a range of ideologies. And so the existence of China is something that the way that the way I think it should be understood is part of this wave of like past waves, uh, democratization, um, which have characterized over lengthy history, the history of capitalism. And so I think um, the United States, unless uh, we see, which seems very far away and remote in terms of the likelihood, unless we see some sort of substantial, powerful movement uh, that rejects this sort of unipolar uh, orientation, I think this political establishment is dead set on trying, however futile it may be and however destructive it is, is trying to hold on to this idea that they can be the world's policeman or the world's ruler. I Yeah, I, I have seen, though, uh, I mean, I think your assessment really, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but I have seen some pushback, uh, not much, but I, I sent you an email. I, I linked to this article by Peter Beinart in The Atlantic about the Democrats being lured into a, quote, race to the bottom on demonizing China and saying that the Democrats would have to abandon some of their core platforms of domestic reform. That's like, you know, more more investment in education and health spending as a priority over you know, n- you know, nonstop growth uh, in the defense sector. And I thought that that was uh, not, you know, th- it wasn't exactly the most, uh, you know, anti-imperialist type, uh, you know, article out there. But I kind of liked it. And it was in The Atlantic. I kind of liked it because it was such a bland mainstream type of uh, article that they, it, could, it could still, 
you know, the the idea that we shouldn't be in a race to the bottom on China and that blaming China is antithetical to domestic reform. That basic message came across uh, in an article, uh, you know, in something as mainstream as The Atlantic. I was happy to see that. I don't know how you felt about that one, if you, if you were able to uh, have taken a look. Uh, and then I saw some other, there, there, you know, I've seen some stuff come up in, you know, uh, liberal pieces saying that, the, the Biden strategy of trying to escalate the rhetoric against China is going to backfire. Nahal Tusi had a piece in Politico saying that Biden is just basically stirring the pot on xenophobia and racism. Why would he want to do this? Um, again, a very straightforward critique of what was going on. Um, I feel like there is some basis to resist this, and hopefully we'll see, because I just don't think... When the liber- when the Democrats, I think, do the analysis on this, I, I think they're going to realize like that's not going anywhere good. I mean, the thing with China is like, well, it's not like we as a country are not dependent on them as well, right? I think that maybe it's going to be ne- neoliberalism in a way that saves us to some extent. Because what I mean by that is, at some point, uh, this be- you know we we start facing just you know like problems with our trade economy, problems with our supply chains, problems with the, like the business ties that we've created with China. I think at some point, uh, and I wonder what you think about this because it kind of cuts against this idea a little bit that China presents an alternative because in some ways China is also uh, complicit with us in this, in, 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 in our neoliberal uh, system, right? It sort of enables it to an, to an extent. What do you think about that? Do you think that there's some uh, some contradiction here to an extent that that we're actually, at, you know, we're we're actually in a kind of symbiosis with China? I think, um, yeah. To clarify, I what I mean, what I meant to say is that the the sort of I would argue that the dominant orientation of those in power in the United States is this anti-China orientation. But of course, as with all issues even within the sort of establishment or ruling class or whatever you would call it there are uh gradations of opinion there are contradictions and i think even within and you'll see this on all sorts of international issues and i think china too um people who will criticize uh this orientation and and i think what you spoke to is an important uh part of this meaning the sort of uh um in, uh, relationships between the U.S. and Chinese economies and the sort of uh, um, uh, deep ties between different actors, private and uh, public, between the U.S. and China. But I I guess um, there is this sort of narrative that, the Uni- that China is somehow, I don't know, I think, I don't think China did anything to force the United States to, to, to move such large aspects of its manufacturing abroad. I think that's a narrative which is which isn't exactly what you're saying, but that's a narrative that that's the sort of dominant narrative that sort of uh, pushes this sort of idea of US China symbiosis or something like this. I think we have to understand that when US China relations normalized and even to this day China's a far poorer country than the United States. Uh, and wave was extremely far poor uh, at the beginning of normalization, at the beginning of the sort of uh, trend of the United States offshoring manufacturing uh, to predominantly 
Asia and China. I think this sort of narrative that China is responsible, I think, removes the response. I, I would argue the principal responsibility was on the U.S. capitalists and corporations who thought they could make more money off of cheaper Chinese labor and that there was no sort of arm uh, twisting to force them to do that. I think there are important conversations that should and can and should be had regarding uh, the U.S. productive sector and the fact that it's been offshored. But I think the responsibility principally lies with the United States corporations that made this conscious decision to do that in their self-interest right. to try and make more profits. But yeah. I do hope that this sort of... Um, sort of material ties and economic relationships between people can provide a basis for some level of like uh, de-escalating the situation within the U.S. Uh, sort of media or uh, political ecosystem, which is becoming increasingly polarized and uh, increasingly hawkish. Uh, these sorts of voices, which from a liberal perspective or mainstream perspective, I think are important uh, and hopefully can provide a check against this seemingly uh, endlessly escalating dynamic. Yeah, I mean, this is a good, I mean, this discussion has been really helpful for me because it's like, it's it's important because like right now everyone's so focused on coronavirus that it seems like it's a discrete event. But what you've laid out here and what I believe as well is that this is definitely part of like a much longer history. This is part of a much longer narrative between the US and China that stretches way before the onset of coronavirus. And this is sort of just the latest um, escalating event in a way. And I think that it's some it's really taken my breath away in terms of like how maybe we could talk about this for a sec, how the you know, how even I would say like liberal minded pundits uh, or commentators in the media, sort of have to asterisk China when they talk about coronavirus. They ha always have to say, you know, I like I will concede that the Chinese government has a lot of culpability here. I will concede that the, you know, the Chinese, um, you know, uh, made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of cover-ups here. And we will, I mean, these are people that are advocating for cooperation will say, let's talk about that later. We'll get to who's, you know, the, the, the things that they did wrong later. But for now, you know, we need to work together. And that's on the that's on the sort of like pro cooperation side. When you get to the other side, of course, it's absolute insanity. It's like, you know, Judge Judge Jeanine Pirro and from like a waving American flag screaming about the Wuhan virus and how we have to um, we have to make China pay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost to the point where just a couple weeks ago, when Tim Cotton had said that thing about bio, a manufactured bioweapon, that China had basically manufactured this, that was considered extreme and dangerous at that time, just for like, you know, the few days around surrounding when he said it. And that we've now moved to a point based on nothing. I mean, it, there's no evidence. In fact, all the evidence that I've seen comes out the other side saying that, and we're talking about peer-reviewed stuff in like Nature and Lancet that's saying this is this is a naturally occurring virus. But we're actually at a point now where it is, to me, acceptable uh, in the mainstream to discuss the possibility that this came from a Chinese lab. And that, to me, was really shocking because I I've traced these stories down 
and there's no basis for them. Like there, it doesn't it doesn't rest upon any evidentiary substrate. Like it's all it all just goes down to something like Josh Rogan's. It's an opinion piece, uh, which is making me realize that this firewall between the editorial section and the news section in these in these newspapers doesn't mean anything. But the Josh Rogan opinion piece in the Washington Post Global Opinion section. I mean, kind of read as factual reporting, but it was just, and I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. It was just basically referring to a bunch of State Department cables saying that, um, and which they never disclosed, saying that um, we had some concerns about safety measures at Wuhan, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or whatever. Or if you trace it the other way, there's an intelligence report that's been classified, but says that we have classified sources but we can't just tell you what it is that that suggests that this came out of a lab i mean it it's just really shocking to me how thinly supported this idea is yet how it's taken a grip in the mainstream narrative and at the same time i see people like donald mcneil doing reporting and and bruce aylward of the who saying the exact opposite being reported in places like the New York Times, but utterly ignored, like that doesn't make it down to the 24-hour CNN Fox News cycle. Uh, though I've seen I've seen Donald McNeil on CNN, but it just doesn't grip people. And he said that uh, you know there's no reason to not trust the Chinese numbers. There's no reason to think that this is anything but um, a story of an outbreak that happened, and that being on the ground, the WHO was on the ground in China. It's not like we, it was a total secret. We had people there, the WHO had people there. All of that reporting, and you've highlighted this in your articles, suggests that the Chinese response was actually quite strong. But it just can't be said. Like, it, you even on the, on the sort of, like, cooperation side of the spectrum, you still have to asterisk it to say, well, you know, I, I agree that China had, has had a lot of problems or whatever. Uh, and I feel like that's um, the mark of like kind of where, you know, what the situation is, is no matter what the facts are, you have to concede that China lies, China deceives, China's dangerous, etc. Even if you are on, even if you are sort of against escalation. Um, I, I've found it really remarkable. Yeah, I think um, I think this sort of is 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 not a new phenomenon. Like it sort of touches back on the previous topic we were talking about in terms of like contradictory opinions within sort of mainstream uh, discourse. The, the, the fact that some contradictory opinions exist. The issue is that uh, many of the sort of mainstream or liberal uh, or whatever you want to call them uh, voices that, 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 uh, that claim to be opposing hawkishness or, or whatever, they'll by and large accept the presentation that, you know, China did a cover-up. China China did X, Y, and Z that makes them responsible. But then after that, they'll be like, oh, but, you know, Trump's bad because what have you. And this is sort of the same sort of orientation they take with every country that's targeted by the United States, whether it's the Iraq war. You know, Saddam Hussein's X, Y, and Z, the most evil person in the world, therein legitimizing the entire narrative for confrontation and then saying, but we shouldn't do this. And so it's a very hollow resistance. And I think one that those who are very concerned with this uh, increasing hostility can't rely on. 
uh, because time and time again, when when push comes to shove, these sorts of voices don't really offer a substantive resistance to uh, U.S. imperialism uh, or the U.S. foreign policy agenda. Um, and I think this Rogan uh, article in the Washington Post, which you mentioned, is a good example of this trend. Um, and it's something that Max Blumenthal and I wrote about recently in the Gray Zone. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, far-right forces and neocons like Tom Cotton uh, and uh, far-right papers like the Washington Times, back as early as uh, January of this year, were advancing the sort of narrative that uh, the virus was engineered as part of a biowarfare campaign by the Chinese government. Um, and this was roundly discredited by the scientific community, but also mainstream outlets at the time. Um, and uh, you had, as you mentioned, outlets uh, or scientific journals like Nature. You, uh, there was a team of uh, US, UK and Australian researchers who came forward and saying there's no evidence that it was manufactured or came from a lab. Uh, everything indicates that it had a natural origin like so many other emerging pathogens. Uh, a team of, or, or a group of uh, about 30 scientists wrote an open letter in the Lancet Medical Journal, similarly uh, denouncing conspiracy theories and again, uh, emphasizing that the scientific evidence gave no support for these these notions. But then these sort of mainstream, quote-unquote, anti-Trump resistance outlets like the Washington Post uh, uh, and their writers like Josh Rogan basically polished off this discredited conspiracy theory and made a few tweaks to now argue that, oh, it, it wasn't a biowarfare program, but it was because of reckless research and, and really unsafe protocols at the lab that it escaped from or, or accidentally leaked from this lab. Um, and yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things that this story uh, represents. One, as you mentioned, this sort of lack of... Uh, when we were talking about this earlier, sort of like the the relationship between the sort of private media that we're told are free and private press in the United States and the U.S. government or, or ruling establishment and how how media and political discourse is shaped by this relationship. Um, there isn't, I think the United States sort of uh, puts itself forward as having this free press in contrast to the quote unquote bad countries. Um, because many of its leading media institutions are private corporations. But the reality is that these private corporations, by and large, have the same interests as the US government. They're both run, they're both beholden to and uh, uh, or run by uh, the corporate sector uh, and capitalists who, by and large, have similar interests. And so you see this sort of structural sort of issue that leads to a confluence in opinion uh, and the lack of challenging of if a U.S. government official says something anonymously, it's basically treated as a fact without substantive challenge, as this sort of Rogan piece relied on. Um, and there's also a revolving door of, of people between Washington, different think tanks, NGOs, and these sort of corporate media outlets that leads to this sort of um, uh, sort of pool of like similar thought and, and representation. Um, more specifically, if you'd like me to talk about this Rogan article, I can go into it. Um, uh, basically, it relied on State Department cables from two years ago um, and that visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
that and there's a comment in this by two U.S. embassy officials who have apparently were not told that they have any scientific expertise, but they say there's a shortage of of trained technicians at this lab. And then the rest of the article, uh, one, it ignores the main conclusion of the cable that the author Josh Rogan claims is his bombshell report. Uh, the main conclusion of the, the cable by these embassy officials was that this research is really important because uh, these sorts of viruses, uh, it's important that we are able to study them uh, in order to uh, better able to predict and prevent their outbreak in the future, which is the conclusion of the scientific community also. This sort of research is done around the world in these sorts of laboratories. It's not just something, some risky, uh, shady business that's being done by uh, Ch Chinese scientists. Um, and so relying on this cable, it's treated, one, as being credible just because it's the U.S. government and the possible sort of conflict of interest between U.S. government officials and opinions on China isn't even interrogated by anybody. And then it's just anonymous Trump official speculation. Also, where's the conflict of interest being explored there? And someone who's labeled a quote-unquote research scientist named Xiao Chiang. Uh, omitted from the article is that this research scientist, quote unquote, has no expertise in the area of virology, medicine, epidemiology, anything like that. He teaches courses on uh, blogging China and internet freedom in the United States. Oh, and for, for <laughs> 20 years, over 20 years, he's been funded by the principal arm of U.S. soft power and foreign policy uh uh, and foreign policy being the National Endowment for Democracy. So, and he's explicitly an anti-Chinese government activist. This is all omitted. He doesn't speak to any virologists or scientists in his article, and he was called out on social media by a number of virologists in the United States who said that he was misrepresenting the findings of the cables, he was misrepresenting the opinions of the scientific community, and questioned why he didn't interview anybody, and he had no answer. He said, I interviewed top virologists, but he didn't provide the quotes for them. Like, it's so preposterous. This person who works for, like, one of the most powerful media institutions in the country isn't able to get one virologist to, uh, to give a quote for his, for his bombshell story. It's, it's ridiculous that this is considered uh, reputable journalism and reporting and not just, like, a thinly veiled leak from a Trump administration that's explicitly, we know from government cable, is trying to shift the narrative to blame China. Uh, there are a number of other issues of it if people want to read uh, the art of the report Max Blumenthal and I did, which which uh, investigates and exposes this as being a complete hoax. I'll, I'll, I've read it. I've seen what you guys did. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes to the, the Gray Zone article, as well as some of the other ones that you wrote, like on MR Online. Uh, but what was really, you know, and if you talk to like media watch, watcher, watchdog people about it, what's really frustrating is that as well-intentioned as some of the media watchdog people are, that they like to pretend, they like to buy into this fiction that, they'll, you know, if you criticize the Josh Rogan piece, they'll say, okay, yeah, that's, that's true, but there's probably significant, you know, uh, deficiencies in his reporting. But you have to understand that that was an opinion piece. And the Washington Post is not the opinion section. They, they don't stand behind their opinion pieces. And that's the... That's the that's the, the sort of the um, uh, free marketplace of ideas at work here is that the Washington Post is going to publish articles on both sides. So you'll get stuff like Hugh Hewitt's 
you know, opinion in the Washington Post calling for war, basically. And you'll get other stuff in the Washington Post, like from I forgot her name, but the woman from Ford Foundation that said that, um, you know, China's uh, response to this has been really good. So it's all over the place. And that's the free media. But my in viewing what has been going on the past couple of weeks, it's like I it almost doesn't matter because unless CNN and Fox, which are sort of like the true mass retail level of media, like nobody really reads the Washington Post at a mass level. Right. But what I've seen is that CNN and Fox, the second they see something printed in the Washington Post or a similar paper of uh, a reputable paper, they feel like they have free reign to now report it. Because no matter what, they'll say, well, it appeared in the Washington Post. Even though it was an opinion piece, they don't make that distinction. And so I saw once Josh Rogan's piece in Washington Post, and I think that was April 14th, April 15th, Fox runs the story. Sources believe coronavirus outbreak originated in Wuhan lab as part of China's efforts to compete with U.S. And on April 16th, CNN runs a story. U.S. explores possibility that coronavirus spread started in Chinese lab, not a market. And then from there, the story to me has just been ultimately laundered in the Washington. Like I've seen not, you know, that there is a, uh, a filtration, like a chain of filtration or a, a chain of laundering where you go from these unsourced leaks, probably intentional within the, say, State Department or the CIA that gets fed to the Washington Post and someone there picks it up and says, look, I can't run this as a news piece because it's not properly sourced. I'll run it as an opinion piece. And then next thing you know, it's it's picked up by the 24 hour news and now it's gone full viral, you know, and then and it starts in it starts going back into social media and stuff like that. And and um, people screenshotting stuff from Fox News or CNN on social media. And then it becomes an established fact. And I've seen this happen with such speed that. They've got to know that this is the case, meaning like if you're working inside the State Department, you're trying to craft public opinion. You've got to understand, like, all I've got to do is get someone from The Washington Post to do this. Then I seat it there. Then it'll get into Fox News. Then it'll get to CNN. And I feel like the media is so easy to play. Like it's a, you know, like just just watching how this thing spread. Um, it is not the sort of enlightened, enlightened free market of ideas that we claim it is. I feel like it's a sort of like, sort of, you know, how do I put it? Like news wholesale system where it's just like one Washington Post really exists to take in State Department cables or leaks from unnamed sources, package it up so that the next person down the chain in the distribution chain can run it. Uh, and now it's, I, I feel like it's just sort of, we are now in the position where we have to talk about this as was this a bioweapon or was this not a bioweapon? Like that's what, that's what we're talking about. Whereas the science reporting is like, that's not even a valid question um, is how far off the trail we've gotten with this stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you completely. Um, you see this in, I don't think like the notion that anyone's paying attention to whether at the top of an article in small font it says opinion above it is preposterous like it the the story relies on the weight of having washington post on its header right um and if you were to even even if you were to take the argument on face value like if one were to read the 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 supposed free market of ideas of the 
Washington Post or New York Times opinion piece, I it would I don't understand how anyone could come to the conclusion that these people don't have a very clear political line uh, with respect to all sorts of issues. And that's very much not just this balanced exchange of ideas and and perspectives. Um, someone like Josh Rogan, he's no uh, just benign reporter. He's a lifelong sort of career neoconservative whose previously whose previous work, according to his own bio, is involves working in the Japanese embassy. Uh, he's very much one of these sort of Washington, D.C. establishment pundits. Um, and yeah, like I think even this specific example you saw like right after the article comes out, it gets shared by like people who work at the New Yorker or the New York Magazine, or it gets shared by people at the New York Times. It gets shared by Chris Hayes of MSNBC, one of the supposedly progressive members of MSNBC with the caption, yikes and no interrogation of it at all. And then you'll see this sort of cascade of reports on the initial report. And then, as you said, it just eventually becomes an assumed fact that's given legitimacy and has been mainstreamed when it should be called out. It should have no place in public discussion at all, this like absurd uh, conspiracy theory hoax. Uh, but now it's been given the legitimacy because it's appeared in like 30 prominent US news bylines. and. It's yeah, it's pretty- a bit of a magic trick because you know you know how it goes on like Twitter. Like if someone if Chris Hayes says yikes and you looked at what he retweets, if it's WashingtonPost.com as the link, like it passes the test, right? Um, like you're allowed to take stuff from the Washington Post seriously mm-hmm. without interrogating it because you can assume that the Washington Post has done its editorial function and vetted it to some extent. Um, but but so and it it doesn't say Washington op ed dot you know whatever even though people it w- really wouldn't matter even if it did. But like you said, I mean, it doesn't say opinion, right? It just says WashingtonPost.com, and everyone's like, wow, okay. Then you read the headline, and that's all that matters. I don't have to read the substance of it. And there is definitely this this sort of, uh, you know, the Washington, like, it, it just sort of, the story builds itself through branding, as far as I can see. Like, as long as we get the right brands on it, if you can get any of those papers to brand it, or you can build up to it, like you can get like uh, you can get like a Politico to run it, or you can get like the Hill to run it, or something, uh, someone to run it, um, and that 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 it just seed it somewhere, and then it'll start working its way up. And once it hits something as big as New York Times, then it can go full mass retail. And I just there's no check on it, and so I feel like our system of free media right now, uh, I, I I just don't think it's working in a way that in the in the way that it's supposed to especially not with social media out there kind of kind of in in, in a lot of people like chris hayes sort of just running roughshod on social media without any sort of editorial function governing how they run their social media accounts either it's incredibly irresponsible but it's it's unfortunately not surprising these are the same by and large the same people, the same institutions that have sold war after war, that sold the Iraq war with no real accountability, reform, the same people, like, I think we have to recognize, like, we can't expect these same institutions that are comfortable with such distortions and and misrepresentations that have had such disastrous consequences in the past to now all of a sudden be great uh, journalistic uh, investigators and very um very cautious with their 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 hawkish reporting like this is it's it's yeah, to not... me at least that this is how they 
this is how they are. Because they're chasing clout. I mean, because people who are out there, like you or Max Blumenthal, trying to, uh, trying to, uh, I, I guess, in a way, subvert the dominant narrative, you, like you, you're not going to get the same number of clicks as someone who's feeding the beast. You know, so I feel like the in, the 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 way that the incentives are set up in our media system is like to basically feed popular opinion and to feed it like just throw more gas on the fire and people right now who are tweeting breathlessly about bioweapons and and lab leaks and stuff they're going to get the leaks because that's what people not only believe but they want to believe more of it right like they want they want more and more people to um to legitimize the conspiracy theories that are running out there you know and so i just it it just seems really dangerous but uh we do need that counter narrative nonetheless because, you know, ultimately, it, I don't think that popular opinion is all powerful. I mean, bullshit eventually runs up against reality, I think, right? It's not like we can just do anything we want here. And at some point, I think we're going to realize that there's no, I, I don't know if we can, like, I don't know how far we can escalate this before we realize, like, we've hit a hard wall of reality. And, I think at that point it is important that like people like you and Blumenthal, et cetera, are putting out um, much more reasoned pieces that are thought through on longer, you know, in longer scales of time and in with more respect to established fact and evidence and science and things like this. Um, so can you just briefly describe the work you've been doing with the gray zone and what, what they're about, what Max Blumenthal is about. Cause I'm not sure many people have necessarily, I mean, I've heard of Max Blumenthal, but it might be worth just maybe if you could describe a bit about the work that you all are doing. Sure. So the gray zone is uh, founded by uh, and edited by Max Blumenthal, who's a U.S. journalist who's been working for uh, decades. Um, and uh, I've contributed some articles there, but I'm not like someone, I don't want to speak on behalf of the gray zone, uh, but uh, it um, it basically is a, a media independent, uh, completely uh, independently funded um, and reader funded media network uh, that uh, basically focuses on uh, U.S. foreign policy and seeks to provide alternative perspectives on the sort of um, the sort of war story of the day, whether it's regards to Venezuela or Iran or Syria or China and uh, or others, and um, seeking to provide that alternative perspective in a media ecosystem which is increasingly hostile or and exclusionary towards alternatives, um, especially relating to these hot button issues, which have so much uh, import and consequence for people around the world. Um, and yeah, uh, they've done like, uh, like, for example, my work there is focused on uh, a lot of um, common uh, or popularized or mainstreamed narratives about China and tries to investigate and shed some light on um, their sort of evidentiary standards, uh, sources they rely on, and some of the dubious practices which wouldn't be accepted on any other issue that are sort of normalized for a country like China in order to advance a suitable narrative. Um, 
And yeah, I think it's a really indispensable source, uh, particularly again within a U.S. Uh, media climate, which largely excludes such perspectives. And um, they have a number of uh, video uh, news programs and, and video documentaries as well, uh, which you can check out on YouTube. Awesome. Uh, yeah, uh, just so for the listeners, I mean, check the show notes. I don't know if you all check, check the show notes, but like, especially when we do pods like this, um, uh, I think it's important to tr- kind of check out the articles that are linked. I'll link the Gray Zone article that you did, that you worked. It's in the Gray Zone, right? The one that you worked with Max Blumenthal yep. on. On the Chinese um, lab theory. On the Chinese lab theory. Um, and also some of your other writings. Uh, I think, what was the one? MRonline.org? Yeah, I wrote it there about uh, coronavirus and the sort of China-US dynamic. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but is there anything that you're reading right now or that you've, media that you've consumed, uh, like a book or something that has, uh, that you would recommend? No, I mean, not necessarily yeah. on this topic, but, um, well, you know. one that comes to mind is on this topic, but, uh, uh there's actually a, um, a writer who was very influential, uh, a lovely person, Jude Woodward, a British, uh, uh, scholar who, passed away, unfortunately, today, um, who uh, was very influential on my own thinking with respect to U.S.-China relations and did a lot of this work for years and decades uh, uh, that I'm trying to continue. Uh, And uh, she wrote a book in 2017 called The U.S. versus China, Asia's New Cold War, that I think is an excellent, essential, and most relevant read it's growing in relevance every day that's identified a lot of the things that people are only now starting to become aware of this idea of a new cold war and stuff and i think it's an essential read for anyone who sort of wants the broader context of why and where this sort of uh, hostility is coming from and what's motivating it in the united states from a a larger term perspective so so i definitely recommend uh, the u.s versus china asia's new cold war by jude woodward great uh that's uh yeah, it's all been really helpful, man. Uh, crazy story, uh, crazy times. It's nice to uh, nice to hear from someone that's got uh, uh, got a slightly more, I would say, rational take on things. So, uh, thanks a lot for stopping by, man. Thanks.